Let's go ahead and pray together as we open God's Word together this morning. Father, we do come before you this morning and are thankful that there is grace and mercy for us, and a true sign of that is that we have your Word. We pray that you would take its eternal truths, and that you would write it on our fallible, insecure, wandering hearts, and that we would find that we are in the grip of your grace this day. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30, this is the holy, inerrant word of God. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, we have this morning three teachings of the Scriptures that seem contradictory to one another, but I think it is no accident that Matthew puts them here back to back to back, right after Jesus has sent the disciples out to preach the good news of the gospel in the face of what he declared was going to be opposition and hatred and even persecution. In verses 20 through 24, we have Jesus speaking here about the lack of repentance that these three cities have come to, and therefore the judgment that they shall receive. And then we have in verses 25 through 27, Jesus asserting that God alone can bring people to faith and repentance. And then we have verses 28 through 30, the free offer of the gospel, where he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And on the face of it, they seem like contradictory teachings. Repent, and because you didn't repent, you're going to be judged. It's only God that can move you to faith and repentance. Now come to me, all of you. How do these three things go together? Well, I want to look at that together this morning. First, the need for repentance unto life. 
Jesus has been preaching to the people of Galilee, and he's been performing miracles in their midst, which have testified to the truth of what he has proclaimed. And Jesus, as he is preaching, he's looking for a response. And he makes it clear what that response is that he's looking for. He says it is repentance there in verse 20. You remember, if you think back to the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 4, verse 17, that the very first words that Jesus utters as he is preaching is, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, as he's preaching in these three cities, he doesn't see the proper response. He doesn't see what he is looking for, repentance. And so he issues woes to these cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. Why these three? Because these three towns were where Jesus did most of his ministry. These were the towns in Galilee that he spent the most time. Chorazin was about two miles from Capernaum and most likely was a pretty significant town of the day. Bethsaida was a town on the Sea of Galilee. It was on the east side of the Jordan River. And this is the town from which Jesus will call Peter and Andrew and James and John. We also know that it is the site of um, a number of Jesus' miracles that are recorded in the Gospels. In Mark chapter 8, that is where Jesus healed the blind man. In Luke 9, that's where Jesus fed the 5,000. And then you have Capernaum, which was Jesus' home base. That was the place from which he launched all of his ministry in Galilee. And he probably spent more time there than anywhere else. These three towns, they enjoyed a privilege. They, above everywhere, had heard Jesus' preaching, and they had seen countless miracles performed, most of which we obviously don't even have recorded in the Gospels. John, when he's writing his Gospel, will say that there were many more things that Jesus did that he didn't record. And he goes so far as to say that he supposes that if he had recorded everything that Jesus has done, had done, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to hold it all. Oh, the things that the people in these three cities have seen. And yet they don't respond as they were called to respond. What was necessary to respond in repentance? And because they didn't, Jesus says, the judgment for the people in these cities will be even greater than it will be for Tyre and Sidon. He says the judgment for Capernaum will prove even worse than than the judgment that will be rendered on Sodom. Sodom, that city that was the, the great example of wickedness in the Old Testament. Why does he say that the people in these cities will receive an even greater condemnation because they had an even greater opportunity to repent. The greater privilege neglected, the greater judgment rendered, and the greater punishment received. They had more opportunity, so they will receive more judgment. I think that is a warning for us in this day as we sit here with Bibles open on our laps. Many of us having heard the gospel for decades. 
What exactly is this repentance that Jesus is calling for? What is this repentance unto life? Well, I think the best definition of repentance unto life is found in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It says this, it says, Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of it and endeavor after new obedience. It begins by saying, notice that it is a saving grace. That is, repentance unto life is a grace from God whereby we acknowledge our sin. And this leads into our second point. Repentance only comes by the sovereign, electing love of God. The starting place of repentance unto life is receiving the mercy of God that is given to us in Christ Jesus. We believe. We have faith. We repent. But notice faith is intimately tied together with repentance. Biblical faith is a repenting faith. And biblical repentance is a believing repentance. You can't have repentance unto life apart from faith. And you won't exercise faith apart from repentance. But the Westminster Shorter Catechism is right when it clearly says we apprehend the mercy of Christ first. That is, we have faith. Faith and repentance are, as I like to say, two sides of the same coin. You, you really can't separate them. You have the one, you must have the other. You have the other, you must have the other. You, you can't separate them. And in a very real sense, we could say that they happen simultaneously. That we repent and we have faith. But if there is a priority, if one logically happens before the other, or if one chronologically happens before the other, it is faith. Otherwise, we've done something, and we've somehow justified ourselves even before we had faith. No, we've been gripped by God's grace in Christ, and because of that, we repent unto life. Faith and repentance, two sides of the same coin. What does faith or repentance unto life look like? Well, the Westminster Catechism answers it when it says it looks like grieving and hating our sin. That is, we're not simply sorry for our sin. It's not just a, ah, shucks, I wish I hadn't done it. It's a grief. It's a sorrow, recognizing that we've offended a holy God, that we are not what we were created to be. And because of that grief, we're moved to action. We're moved out of that grief to turn away from our sin and to turn unto God, as the catechism says, in new obedience. It's a whole new way of living. The Pharisees of Jesus' day and the scribes, that they would teach a repentance that was kind of a one-for-one, that you repent of this sin, that you did this sin in this moment, and so you repent of this one thing. And, and when Jesus is speaking about repentance unto life, he's talking about a whole adjustment in the course that you're walking. It's turning one direction and headed the other. 
But none of this begins apart from God's sovereign, electing love. Jesus makes that clear here as he thanks the Father in verse 25 for having hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. He thanks the Father from hiding what? From hiding the meaning of the miracles that he's done. Of hiding the fact that the king has come and the kingdom has broken in. Now what's the point of this? Why would you thank the Father for this? Well, Jesus wants us to understand that neither a person's position, nor their ability, nor their prestige grants them salvation. The wise and the understanding, as Jesus calls them, are those with the best of human abilities and position. And He isn't saying that none of them are saved, that they are all excluded, but He is clearly saying, as He does in other passages, that it's often harder for them to believe those who are most accomplished in this life, in this world. Because they tend to be less humble and more dominated by a spirit of self-independence. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, God does not show special favor to the rich or the powerful or the noble. And he says, not many of you were like this. This is, in fact, welcome news. It's welcome news. Because it means that the Christian faith is not simply for the great. The church is not a country club for the wealthy and the powerful and the elite. Nor is it a fraternity for the educated and the bright and the sophisticated. Having more doesn't make you more qualified for salvation. No. The only basis for our salvation is the sovereign, electing love of God. If we have Christ, it is purely by the grace of God. All of you who sit here in this room this morning can know Christ. You can know Christ. Even the most intellectually, emotionally, physically, mentally lacking among us. And that's good news for most of us in this room. It's for me. Jesus says here in verse 26, God must graciously will it. Salvation is always of the Lord. Yes, we are to believe we are to repent and we are to come to Him, but it begins with Him first coming to us. Our salvation is the result of His sovereign electing love. I remember first wrestling with this, uh, with the sovereignty of God and salvation. I was a seminary student. And I was at work one day and friends at work had been on me for days, fellow seminary students, and they led me through the scriptures and passage after passage showing me God's sovereignty and salvation. And I remember bringing every argument I could bear against them, but it really wasn't against them, was it? It was against the Bible. I remember Leah picking me up one night from work and driving 
back to our apartment and I remember explaining this to her and telling her about these different passages in the Bible. And we were parked outside our apartment complex. I remember she had put the car in park and I was in tears. And I said one of the worst things I've said in my entire life. In tears, I said to her, I said, if this is the God of the Bible, I don't want to believe in him. Shows you the depth of sin and the very argument for why we need to rely upon the sovereign love of God for our salvation. What was, to me, one of the most heinous things I had ever heard weeks later would become one of the most beautiful teachings. I'd ever seen in the Bible. It is such good news. Most are initially alarmed by thinking about God's sovereignty and salvation because we wrongly think that we're better off in our own hands than in God's hands. That's really what's at stake here. Jesus thanks the Father because he knows that if salvation is in our hands, we have no hope. If it's in his hands, we have every hope. And here is what we often miss in this discussion. Every single one of us is a living ruin of sin. We're just a living ruin of sin. It may not be as sinful as some, but every single one of us comes into this world with a mind that is steeped in sin, with a heart that is cold in sin, with a soul that is buried in sin, with a will that is dominated by sin. So how are we ever going to desire God? How are we ever going to reach out to God? How are we ever want to, going to want to come to God? We won't, we won't, apart from His sovereign, electing love. So it is such good news. Our recoiling from the Bible's declaration of God's sovereign, electing love is because we are blind to the depth of our own sinfulness, and this recoiling is the greatest sign of how deep this ignorance runs. As Paul says in Romans, there is no one who does good. No, not even one. Not even a single one of us. Among all of us that are alive in this world or have been alive in the history of humanity, if we were given all of eternity to turn to God, not a single one of us would. Apart from His sovereign, electing love. And how does it happen? Well, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, he says this, For God, who said, light, Let light shine out of darkness, is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. His revelation shines upon us according to His gracious will, as Jesus says here, and we believe and we repent. This is uh, beautifully shown in the life of Paul himself as he is a murderous persecutor of Christ and the church, and he is on the road to Damascus, and what happens? The God strikes him blind. 
And he calls out to him and he comes to him. And as that light of Christ shines upon him, he believes. And as it were, the scales fall off of his eyes. And in a moment, he is changed from a persecutor of Christ to a disciple of Christ. It's not his own doing. It's not his own willing. It's not him first repenting of what he could. It was not him conjuring up belief. It was first God who came to him according to his gracious will and flooding his mind and his heart with Christ. Salvation is of the Lord. Thanks be to God it is for His sovereign electing love is our absolute only hope. Understand, this raises some questions, so let me try to address a few that are common. Some will say that it's unfair. Maybe, not for the reason we often give. What would be fair is for God to send all people to eternal judgment. That would be fair. It's unfair that He gives us what we don't deserve and He gives us what Christ deserves. Paul will tackle this question in Romans 9 where he asks, is there injustice on God's part? And he answers, by no means. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In effect, Paul is saying, what is really unfair is that we often protest. And that we question the right of God to be God. That we try to sit over Him in judgment. He who is the Creator. And He who is the giver of mercy we would sit in judgment over Him. C.S. Lewis said, it's like putting God in, in the dock. It just boggles the mind. He shows mercy and we respond with complaint. But it shows how sinful we are. Because most of us have asked that question. We've wrestled with it. It is so backwards. We deserve to be tried and we deserve to be judged and we deserve to be condemned and we turn the tables because He has extended mercy. If I can, it's the wrong question. It begins with the wrong presupposition. The presupposition is of that question is that the burden is on God to reveal His truth to all. It is we who've turned away. We who have each gone our own way, as Isaiah says. We've committed cosmic rebellion against Him. We have no right to the revelation. The better question than why doesn't He reveal Himself to all is why does He reveal Himself to any? And the answer is His merciful love and His gracious mercy. Some will concern express a concern that, well, this takes away from the free will of man. It's a sovereign decree of electing love, and that is far from the truth. You and I always operate according to our wills. Those who are saved have chosen salvation. Those who do not believe have chosen unbelief. 
we always, as Jonathan Edwards pointed out, choose according to our strongest desire at any given moment. You and I always operate according to what we desire. We always do what we will. I'm never forced to do anything by anything outside of me. Now, there are things that are outside of me that encourage me one way or another way, but I always choose to do what I want to do in any given moment. And it's always what I desire the most. It isn't that I may choose what I desire the most in any given moment. It is that I do choose whatever I desire the most in every given moment. The unbeliever chooses sin. That is what he or she wants. They never choose God because they don't want God. You say, but they can't. True. But they still choose it. The gospel is generally presented to all people and is nothing but one's own sinful unwillingness that causes them not to accept the gospel. Nothing bars their way. Nothing inhibits them. The offer is freely made to all. The call is true. The call to repentance and faith is a true call to all. The elect people accept the offer. The non-elect choose not to. And it is only by their determination of their own will that they do not. Nothing from outside of them forced them not to. The fault is not with God. It's with us. Illustration most often comes to my mind. I've used it in our new members class or about URC class multiple times. But think about it. You know those... Uh, bug zappers that were all the rage in the 1980s. Remember those? I think maybe quite possibly the greatest invention. It's right up there with the printing press and the automobile and the spork. It's right up there. If you didn't grow up in the 80s, bug zappers were what we did before Netflix and Hulu. Uh, it was, they were wonderful. Uh, you would have these things in your backyard that a bug would run into in the middle of the night and then there would be this great explosion of bug juice everywhere. It would just be and it would disappear. And we would just sit there for hours and watch the bugs and go to the bug zapper. You think about in a dark night and as a bug is flying around and it's flying around, it's flying around, is it freely choosing to fly around in the darkness? Yeah. It's freely choosing to fly around in the dark. Is it its only option to fly around the darkness? Yes. But is it freely choosing to fly around in the darkness? Yes. And then you flip on the bug zapper. And that light emanates. And what happens? The little bug's bug eyes come out of its head. It's drawn to the light. It can't help it. It's so beautiful. It's so wonderful. And it flies towards the bug zapper. Now, is it freely choosing to fly to the bug zapper? Absolutely. Can it help it? No. It's so beautiful. It can't help but be drawn to it. 
but it freely chooses to go to the bug zapper. And this is where the analogy breaks down, then it dies. Or maybe it doesn't. Because when you and I freely choose Christ, we die to ourselves. We see the light of His revelation and we're so drawn in. We can't help but choose Him. And we yield everything for Him. He's that beautiful. I freely choose Christ. Or I freely don't choose Christ. Some express the concern that God's sovereign electing love diminishes the need. Maybe the motivation for evangelism or missions. Well, it doesn't diminish the need because He chooses to use us to declare His truth and reveal Himself to others. It also doesn't diminish the motivation. God's sovereign, electing love actually encourages evangelism and missions because there is a certain hope that God will work to save His people. Paul, we saw in Romans 9, is the greatest evangelist the earth has ever known. He believed in the sovereign, electing love of God. If we go through church history, we see it over and over. Calvin sent missionaries from Geneva into France and as far away as Brazil. Most of these young men will die a martyr's death, but Calvin and Geneva continued to send hundreds and thousands of young men to France as missionaries and evangelists. John Eliot was the first missionary sent to the American Indians. David Brainerd was a missionary to the American Indians in the 1700s who kept a diary of his labors, and it is said that David Brainerd's diary has sent more people into the mission field than any other book besides the Bible. Jonathan Edwards was the great theologian, writer, and preacher of the First Great Awakening. George Whitfield was the great preacher and the great voice of the First Great Awakening. Samuel Davies is believed to have been the first evangelist to slaves in the American colonies. William Carey was the famous missionary to India and is considered the father of the modern missions movement. Robert Moffat was the first missionary to reach the interior of Africa with the gospel. David Livingston is arguably the most famous missionary ever to labor in the continent of Africa. Robert Morrison was the first Protestant missionary to China and the first to translate the Bible into Chinese. And we could go on with Tennant and Fralinehausen and Adoniram Judson and Henry Martin and Samuel Zwemer and a host of others. They all believed in the sovereign, electing love of God. The greatest missionaries and evangelists in the history of the Christian faith have believed in the sovereign, electing love of God. It did not diminish their zeal for evangelism and missions. It did not diminish their urgency, but spurred it on. It did not lead them to half-hearted effort. Rather, it gave them confident, faithful expectation of seeing God save His people. So they went, and they shared, and they told. They understood that the general call of salvation in Christ alone is to go out to all people, that all people need to hear it. 
so that they can repent and so they can believe. And this is our final point, Christ's call to all. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. It's a call to all of us. If you aren't heavy laden, then it's not a call for you. Who's not heavy laden? Who's not burdened? And he promises that when we come, he will give us rest. There's so much rest in Christ. So much rest hiding under the shadow of his wings. And much of it is owed to this doctrine of God's sovereign electing love. What security there is, no matter what dangers we're in, no matter what trials we're in, no matter what we're afflicted in with our minds, with depression, with melancholy, with anxiety, no matter what guilt we're afflicted with for the sins that we've committed, no matter what trials we're enduring with our children or our spouses or our friends, what confidence there is and what rest there is in knowing that a God who has looked upon us with a sovereign electing love and has saved us is also the God of providence. But this God who moved heaven and earth to save us is the one that even holds us now. There's so much rest in coming to Christ. The rest he promises, it doesn't take all labor away. No, he says that he'll take up his yoke upon us. But there's a wonderful rest in his labor. As Augustine once wrote, he said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Some have said that's the greatest sentence ever written in in the history of man outside the Bible. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. And it finds its rest in him. And it won't find its rest until it finds its rest in him. And he is a gentle Lord. He's unlike whatever Lord you may be serving right now if it's not Him. And make no mistake, you're serving someone or something. There's none like Him. You but need come. And He becomes this gentle Lord of your salvation over all of your life. You say, but I'm just not sure I... I want to believe, but I'm not sure whether I'm really elect. Ah, oh, to be freed from such a horrific scheme of our adversary. It's not your job to try and discern if you are elect any more than it is my job to stand up here and try and figure out which one of you are the object of God's sovereign love and election in this room. Nowhere will you find in the Scriptures the command to figure out whether you're elect or not. 
No, the command is simply to believe. And if you believe, you are clearly the object of God's sovereign, electing love. It's like, you know, an infant child being fed by its mother. It doesn't ever push away the food and say, ah, hold on, I want to contemplate for a little bit whether you love me. The child doesn't do that. An infant child has the evidence before them that their mother loves them, and all they have to do is simply receive it. Just simply receive it. Friends, if you long to know and love Christ, it is clear evidence of God's grace already at work in your life. If you want Christ, He's yours. He's yours. Christ has never turned away any person who has come to Him, not one. He said in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And He says to every single one of us in this room, come, come to me. It is a true offer to you, but need to receive it and come find that there is much rest, so much rest. He is a gentle Lord, and He is kind to His people. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do give You praise. you are a God of sovereign love, and that you exercise that love for the saving of sinners such as us. I oh, pray for every single soul in this room, that we would know the free offer of the gospel that has been extended even today to us, that we would receive it we would turn to you in faith and repentance and that we would know the rest that is given in Christ Jesus. A rest that is ours in this life, and a rest that is fully consummated and experienced with every joy in the life to come. May we look to you as children with empty hands simply receiving what you have bestowed and giving you thanksgiving as a result. What a good Father you are. What a great Savior we have. What an unfathomable and unbelievable salvation we have been granted. May we rejoice in it today. In Christ's holy name, amen.